Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. The government's open, but where do we go from here? Democrats want legal status for 700,000 Dreamers, and they'll ultimately need President Donald Trump to make it happen. We talked to Michael Steele, a former aide to House Speaker John Boehner. There's an old saying in politics that only Nixon could go to China. I think that maybe only Trump can do substantial immigration reform. American infrastructure is a mess, and in Orlando, it's hurting poor people of color. HuffPost's Julia Craven looked at the effect of unchecked highway construction on one neighborhood. And there have been major gerrymandering developments in Pennsylvania and voting rights developments in Florida. HuffPost voting rights reporter Sam Levine will catch you up. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm Elise Foley. And this is Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. (laughs) Welcome to So That Happened. I'm Elise Foley, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Arthur Delaney. Hello. And then also Michael Steele, who is the managing director of Hamilton Place Strategies and also a former top aide to the former speaker, John Boehner. And he is here to talk to us both about the shutdown and about immigration, two things that were big, played, plagued Boehner's uh, final years as speaker. It's good to be with you. <laughs> yeah, happy happy <laughs> topic all around. Plague. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the shutdown last time, we thought it would be helpful to kind of reflect on how that played out last time, given that it's just played out this time. This time, the blames the blame will probably be, to some degree at least, on the Democrats. Um, how did, how mean, did that happen did, last time? They did time? vote no on the government yeah. funding bill. So We don't need pretty, to debate you know, um, where the blame no, should I mean, be. Look, but this is, there's a, there's, what happened, the shutdowns are very similar in the sense that they're – they reflect a difference between popularity and intensity. So in 2013, a lot of Republican activists noted, noting the vast unpopularity of, of the Affordable Care Act at that time, thought that the public would support every measure necessary to stop the Affordable Care Act, to repeal it. Uh, and so they, they believed that the public would support shutting down the government, using Congress's power of the purse to try and force uh, President Obama to sign a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. It was it was a really bad plan. It was a dumb plan. It was an unworkable plan. There was never any uh, serious strategy for getting it passed uh, other than passing the House, passing in the Senate, or forcing President Obama to sign a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And I think you saw something similar with uh, the Democrats' calculus this past weekend where they know that protecting the dreamers is extremely popular and assumed uh, – activists in the Democratic Party assumed that the public would support shutting down the government using Congress's power of the purse to protect the dreamers. And as it turns out, whatever the cause, uh, the American people don't support shutting down the government. They don't think that there's any one issue uh, – we haven't found an issue at least uh, – where the public uh, believes is important enough, critical enough and, and 
um, faces such a time pressure that it's that it's worth shutting down the federal government. Isn't a key difference that Republican leaders also say that protecting Dreamers is important, whereas with the 2013 shutdown, Democrats were like, "No, we're not going to repeal Obamacare." Yeah, that's honestly what makes the the this shutdown all the more confounding and and even more of kind of a dumb tactic by by uh, Senate Democrats that. There were there have been bipartisan conversations on uh, protecting the Dreamers and and some sort of compromise where you increase border and in, uh, border security and interior enforcement in exchange for that protection for this population. Those talks have been going on for months. They didn't face a deadline last weekend. They face a deadline next month or early the month after. Uh, so the decision to shut down the government over that issue at that time is just kind of utterly utterly inexplicable. Well, one thing that I found kind of interesting with the Senate Democrats is that there had been calls for them to do this for ages. And they, you know, people voted against the uh, CR in December. So I was kind of surprised that they didn't seem to have a huge amount of a plan once they actually pulled the trigger and it happened. How how was it for House Republicans back then? Did people know, like, this is maybe a dumb idea? Well, yeah, a lot of people knew it was a dumb <laughs> idea. I mean, it was a uh, it was. Like I said, it was an incredibly – it was a very frustrating time period because people who ought to have known better were telling the base of our party, telling people who watch Fox News or listen to talk radio that we had we – could, we could stop Obamacare if we just fought hard enough. And it wasn't a matter of fighting hard. It was a matter of not having the votes in the Senate to pass the, the repeal, let alone override President Obama's uh, certain veto. He was, after all, rather fond of Obamacare. Um, and that was, but I will say that the the, the activists, the folks who who liked this plan or, or, or sought to profit from it in 2013, spent months leading up to the shutdown building the case with outside allies, members, the media as to why they thought this was a sound strategy, and there was none of that for the Senate Democrats shutdown. They seemed to almost accidentally. Uh, accidentally have this fight, accidentally shut down the government without a clear strategy for how to reopen it, what they wanted to gain. Or, I mean, Democratic senators were offering different explanations over the weekend as to why they had shut down the government. Uh, There was a really striking lack of presentation uh, and it felt like they had a fight they did not plan to have. And I I thought at the time that we would probably get past this last deadline and have a fight like this, have a shutdown fight next month. With, with a month of preparation, uh, Senate Democrats getting ready to, to use this tactic. Well, that might happen. Um, I didn't think that they totally came out of nowhere. Trump, after all, had rescinded DACA and set a deadline. And Dreamers themselves were saying, do this. They were saying that in December and they were mad when it didn't happen. And they're mad that it ended. The shutdown ended. Sure. And um, I mean, we have to go back to the fact that this the, the, the current status of this program ultimately goes back to President Obama's inability to work with Congress after the Republican takeover of the House in 2010. Um, He said 22 separate occasions publicly that he did not have the constitutional authority through executive action to protect the Dreamers and then frustrated with Congress's inaction on the issue, he did it anyway, provided that executive protection. And whether he was right or wrong from a constitutional or moral point of view, it's a very reasonable argument that that executive protection uh, is inappropriate. It was an argument that the president, former President Obama made many, many, many times. And so 
ultimately, what we need here is a legislative solution. Congress needs to make a law dealing with this situation, um, and in my opinion, of course, the broader issue of immigration. Yeah, so I, I feel like that brings us kind of back to the past again. The reason that people were calling for this to be part of a must-pass bill is that uh, Democrats and activists saw that the last time that they passed comprehensive immigration reform in 2013, it went to the House and nothing happened. And so, you know, that their argument is that we need to put this in something that has to pass. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to die again in the House. Do yeah. you think that's at all a good argument? I, I understand their concern. I, I don't think that's going to be an issue right now. There, there's a you know, an old saying in politics that only Nixon could go to China. I, I think that maybe only Trump can do substantial immigration reform because he's kind of bulletproof on this issue um, from the perspective of the, the people who oppose increased uh, immigration uh, or amnesty or, what ha- or whatever you want to call it. And so I can't imagine a scenario where there is a bill that President Trump is willing to sign that does not get the votes of the majority of the House Republican Conference. I just don't I don't see that happening. I think with the deadline on March 5th, the, the specter of large-scale deportations beginning, um, the turmoil that that would produce, I think there's a real incentive, there's a real deadline uh, to get something done on this issue. I think that um, many, if not most, Republicans in both the House and Senate uh, want to act on it. Now, um, that's not to suggest that there won't be challenges. And the biggest challenge will probably get be getting President Trump to enunciate a position on this issue and stick to it for uh, greater than the length of a single meeting. Like he said on Wednesday this week that, yeah, I favor giving the Dreamers citizenship in 11 years, which was the DREAM Act and which people like Mark Meadows, the House Freedom Caucus chairman, his head probably exploded. And now he's like trailing him to Davos. Yeah, so I, I, we, we can go chapter and verse on the, the president calling for a bill of love, which was a, uh, a, <laughs> a, a, a description that former Governor Jeb Bush had used about immigration um, in the past and that, that President Trump during the presidential campaign pilloried him for, um, and then insisting on uh, action on a range of issues, chain migration, et cetera, um, rather than the more narrow question of, of protecting the dreamers and securing the border. So I mean, there is no question that Getting the president to uh, have a position, explain that position, and then stick to that position is in some ways probably the biggest challenge that we're going to face over the next five weeks or so as uh, as we have to deal with this issue. What What's your feeling on the idea of putting all these things together? Because I, I remember just from covering this, Republicans often talk about we need to do this in a step-by-step process. We can't jam all these things together. Comprehensive immigration reform is bad. Now it looks like that's what they're trying to do. Uh, no, I think that there's a there's we need to define the, the scope of the issue. So um, a relatively modest package that combines um, protection for the dreamers with improved border protection including where appropriate, a physical barrier, the wall. The wall. Um, that's a relatively, that's a, a relatively easy lift legislatively. That's a pretty, that is a step-by-step measure. But that's whereas, not what they're calling for Whereas if anymore. we deal with these bigger issues, H-1B visas, legal diversity lottery, legal immigration, all of that I think is too big to fit in the scope of the package that we should be working on between now and March 5th. And I think that's what we're going to have to wrestle with uh, over the next several weeks of finding uh, the appropriate size that you know what what we can what can realistically get done so 
the, a big problem is that Paul Ryan has made promises to the House Freedom Caucus that they're not going to do this. Instead, he's promised we'll do this really conservative thing on restricting legal immigration with border security and nothing for dreamers. Which not you know, quite nothing. Well, yeah, like and, not continue and, and DACA. Not quite of. citizenship, no, no citizenship, though. And border security is really an issue for legal immigrants, right? So it seems like that's still the sticking point. Just like it was with the the 2013 bill. How how can that be overcome? Um, you know, Paul Ryan. Some have said doesn't really want to stay in this job. Maybe he could just impale himself on an immigration bill and say, bye, I'm out. John Boehner did a similar thing with with other – you know, he called it cleaning the barn. With the government's funding. Yeah, I I spent a lot of the latter stages of Speaker Boehner's career explaining to various pundits why uh, the speaker could not simply impale himself and uh, put a bill on the floor and then then exit. Um, Well, well, please do it again. The speaker does not have a button on his desk that puts bills on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. No, I, a, I thought he did. It's a uh, no. It brings a diet coke. Um, the uh, <laughs> there's a you have a leadership team that makes a decision about what comes to the floor. All of that leadership team outside of the speaker is planning for a post-speaker future and can't be the person that allowed them to do that. You, you can't. Uh, it has to be a consensus. But what I do think can happen here is we can actually. This is a radical concept. We could allow our Congress and our government to operate the way the founders intended. We could put a bill on the floor in in the Senate, allow amendments on that bill, see what emerges. The House could then take up that bill, offer amendments, see what emerges, have a conference committee afterwards to resolve the differences, and then go to the president's desk for signature. And I I hope and expect that's what will happen. So if there are people who want a more restrictive policy on this, that, or the other – They'll, they'll have the opportunity to offer that, debate it, and have a vote. So, but, but I mean that could have happened in 2013, could have taken up the Senate's immigration bill and put it up for amendments. Right. We could have. And the, the, the problem then was, one, there was no real deadline. And Congress, as you know, tends to wait until right up the 11th hour before a deadline. Uh, and so there was never an action-forcing event. And there was a, there was a, a serious concern among people who were uh, – in favor of sharply reducing legal immigration, in favor of cracking down much more harshly on those already here illegally, that a combination of pro-immigration reform Republicans, who were then a minority in the in the conference, could combine with Democrats to pass legislation that was more liberal than uh, than they wanted. And again, with a deadline looming, I think that there um, you don't have to. It's not a hypothetical matter. You don't kind of have the luxury of scheduling it whenever you want or not. Um, there are uh, millions of people who, uh, whose lives will be impacted very, very soon if we don't act on this issue and, and a lot of compassion to do that. In that regular order scenario you described, the leadership team still presses the button to bring legislation to the floor. How would you – know, so presumably they would be doing that and saying, listen, Freedom Caucus, you will have your chance to, to win amendments and that that would be the thing – that prevents – makes it not you know, impaling the leader. Yeah, exactly. And, and they would also presumably do it with the support of the administration. And that, that makes a really big difference because, because of President Trump's credibility with the Republican base on these issues, his support for if not exactly the legislative product but going through the process is critical. That's why Lindsey Graham is saying we got to get rid of Stephen Miller because he – keeps whispering in Trump's ear and spoiling all these plans. Yeah, I, I try not to comment on uh, on staff, even if they are Duke graduates. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I I think – what do you think would happen, though, if, you know, he allows these people to – Freedom Caucus to put up amendments, then those amendments fail because a lot of the things they want to do, there's a lot of Republicans who aren't dying to do either. Sure. I mean, then can they have a revolt or at that point it's too late and I've already put it on the floor and we gave yeah, you your I think chance. That's, I think that's why the president's uh, – that's why discerning the president's position and having his support is so critical because uh, a lot of those folks who would be the most upset by a immigration bill that is more generous than they would like are also the closest allies of the president in the House. All right. Well, Michael Steele, thank you so much and thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. In Tuesday's shutdown special, I, Arthur Delaney, mistakenly said Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is from Oregon. He's actually from Rhode Island. Please give us five stars in iTunes for coming clean. Hello, we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague Elise Foley. Hello. And my colleague Julia Craven. Hello. Julia, you had a great story this week on our crumbling infrastructure, specifically infrastructure that is placed in uh, unfortunate ways so as to disadvantage African Americans in Orlando. Can you tell us about the neighborhood you wrote about and, and how they wound up completely encircled by highways? Yeah. So it's the Paramore neighborhood in Orlando. It's a historically black area. Um, The neighborhood has been there since the 1800s when it was platted by a um, former Confederate general. Um, Thus the name Paramore is named after him. Um, General Paramore. I've never that's not one of the generals I've heard of before. No, I think he was um, I think he was a smaller. (laughs) a smaller player in a much larger problem. Um, So, yeah, it's this historically black area. It used to be a thriving middle class black area. Um, And then they built the railroad tracks there after Reconstruction. Um, And that was kind of like the beginning of the end. Um, But things didn't really get bad until Interstate 4 was built through the neighborhood in the 50s, late 50s. And now at this point, it's just totally encircled by highways, right? There was this – the photo that was in your story was, I thought, really striking just to see this area or at least part of the neighborhood, just highways on all sides. 
Well, Griffin Park is completely surrounded by highways. That's the um, housing project that you see in the photo. Um, But the neighborhood as a whole, um, the boundaries are major highways, and there's really no spot in the neighborhood that's over a mile away from the interstate. So Paramore is your muse for this story, but this is something that happened everywhere when we had the great highway construction of the middle of the last century, right? Like, it's not just about Orlando. No. Um, so these highways, they've highways popped up in every major city. Um, this happened to the Bronx in New York City. This happened in Chicago. This happened in Atlanta. It happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, it's really bad in California. Um, and we have it here in D.C. with the Southeast Freeway cutting right. off uh, part of Capitol Hill. Right. And a highway is also what ma- what arguably made Liberty City one of the worst neighborhoods in the country in Miami. And so we should talk about one of the reasons that this is all so bad, which you wrote about, which is that the horrible health problems that people are having from being close to all this pollution that they wouldn't otherwise be close to if there wasn't this hi- massive highway right there. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure that adult – so you grow out of asthma or a lot of people grow out of asthma. Um, But in this neighborhood, we found several people who were adults and they had asthma. And so anecdotally, the neighborhood has always been a high asthma area, but there hasn't been a health health disparity study done. And that's what Lawana Gelzer, um, one of the activists mentioned in the story, that's what she's pushing for. She wants a health disparity study done on the neighborhood. She wants to know why – pretty much all of the kids at her daycare center have asthma. And so they they know that because they're living by a highway that the air is probably not ideal because, you know, cars spit out exhaust. Exhaust is not healthy. Right. So, and But the state and or local government has done a few studies or, you know, they've taken measurements and what have they found? So those measurements that they've taken, they are in the good to moderate range under the EPA's air quality index. Uh-huh. However, um, researchers researchers don't really agree with the index. They think that it's a good guide, but they don't think that it's equipped to monitor environments that are near highways. Yeah. And also the AQI doesn't take into account ultrafine particles, which are like these really, really small, minute um, things that float in the air, and they get into your lungs, and that's what makes people sick. But those pollutants aren't even federally regulated. Yeah. So the AQI doesn't consider them. And it also doesn't tell you what's driving the air quality for the day. It could be ozone. It could be particulate matter. It could be something else that's making the air okay or bad. So they're kind of saying, look, we did this study, things are okay there, but in fact, the studies that they did wouldn't pick up what the problem is. Right. I The studies jumped out at me. Um, the whole situation I, t- strikes me as extremely reminiscent of what happened with the water in Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. where the people were like, look, uh, my water's brown. I don't think it's good. And the state government was like, well... Um, it fully complies with EPA standards. Right. Uh, you know, we've done the tests, and uh, you know, we don't really see a problem. And that was really used to shut people up. And it turned out that the federal standard was no good, and that the way they'd gone about complying with it was also pretty corrupt. 
Yeah, and so that was one thing that I had to keep in mind for the story because if you constantly have officials telling you, like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, you can kind of, or at least I did, I was kind of like, well, maybe maybe it is fine. Yeah. And then I had to think about Flint and I had to think about all of these other instances where the government has historically said that things are okay in neighborhoods, um, particularly neighborhoods of color, they've said that everything is okay, and then come to find out it's actually not. What, uh, was there something in your story about high rates of asthma and whether uh, you know you've got a low income community? They're going to be, be, you know, studies have shown that people of lower incomes are more predisposed to some of these health problems anyway, and that that's part of the excuse that officials are able to make in this situation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I mean, yeah, like this is an area where educational attainment is low, poverty is really high. Um there are a slew of other health issues here, but none of that. So I reached out to the health department and the the um county health department and they were they basically said, "Hey, you know, well, long-term effects are based on the health of the community." Um, and so if the community isn't healthy, like, of course, in the long run, they aren't going to be healthy. And I'm just like, that doesn't really answer my question right. about whether or not you're doing anything about the air quality in this neighborhood. Um, so a lot of the officials, they either bounced it off. They either bounced the request off to someone else. They were just like, you need to go talk to this agency or this agency. Or they were just like, well, I mean, the EPA says it's OK. Or they were just like, well, I mean, the neighborhood, <laughs> of course, they're not healthy. Right. So, yeah. Well, it, it seems like a lot of people have the view kind of, well, if it's so bad, then just move. And I thought, you know, there were there was a woman I remember quoted in your story who was saying, like, if I had the money, I would. Yeah. I don't it's just think not, it's not as easy as that. Yeah. I don't. I think what people refuse to acknowledge is that no one wants to live in those conditions. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, another thing that reminded me of Flint is they, you know, in Michigan they knew, they saw the spike in blood lead levels the summer after they changed the water, and they're like, "Well, this is seasonal variation," and the water utility is always able to say, uh, "Well, you know, people living in substandard housing are more likely to be exposed to leaded paint, which is uh, actually, you know, a, a little more dangerous." In some, you know, often more dangerous than leaded water. So it's a, a similar dynamic where you're just saying, oh, well, you know, people are unhealthy anyway. And it's uh, not a good excuse. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I mean, that's true. Like, yes, these communities do have poor health, but that doesn't change the fact that there's something actively making it worse. <laughs> I wonder if we could see a lot of these uh, big highway overpass things torn down. I know there's been talk of doing that here in D.C. I mean, I get probably mainly because of the yuppification that's happened here. But it's an outmoded way of transportation. Like, it it represents a a bygone era where there was suburban sprawl and the automobile really changed the way we live in this country. Uh, But I, I I didn't gather that there was talk of tearing down these highways around Paramore and Orlando. Oh, no, there's so Interstate 4, to my best knowledge, is really the only way in and out of the city. Like, that's how you get to the airport. That's how you get to Disney World. That's how you get downtown. That's how you get uptown. It's pretty much how you get everywhere. 
because it's right like it's right in the middle of the city. So um, I don't think they're going to tear it down um, because actually Florida DOT is expanding I-4 and they're expanding it west into Paramore. Uh, I don't want to spoil the story, but actually, I guess I should say that I do want to spoil the story. I want to talk about what happened to one of the important sources. She was sick. Yes. And and when you talked to her, you know, what, what was that like and then and what happened? Um, so when we spoke to her, her name's Latoya. Um, she was living next to a Superfund site in Paramore. And an EPA Superfund site is a deeply polluted area um, that the government has marched for cleanup. Um, like it's got pollutants in the dirt? Yes. Like in the ground? Yes. And in the groundwater. And um, the government is just like, oh, my God, this is so bad that we actually have to go clean it up. <laughs> Superfund site, a place yeah. with bad things in the ground. Yes. And currently, the current occupier of the site is this company called Tico um, Tico Gas. Um, they're a natural gas provider in Central Florida. Um, and she was talking about how you know the the smell of gas that sometimes gets into the air, and you know everything like it it irritated her asthma and her existing respiratory issues. Um, and how being near the highways and because she was born and raised in this community um, and she's always had breathing problems and they've gotten worse as she got older. Um, and her family, they were moving out of the house, but a couple. So on December 6th, as they were preparing to move out of the house, the U-Haul truck was there and everything. Latoya died. Um, so she died from cardiac arrest and she never got the opportunity to get out of the neighborhood. That's really sad. And it was a so it was not just that the highway was there. There's a range of pollutants. There was the Superfund site, and then there was also uh, shoddy ventilation in the apartment where she lived. Yeah, and there was um there was also there are also 454 contaminated ground lots right in the uh, neighborhood. Things that are like Superfund sites. Yeah, but just on a smaller scale, um, not as polluted as Superfund sites. And so air pollution, that's like a. That's something that was a big deal back when there was a hole in the ozone in terms of like popular consciousness of of uh, environmental health problems. But a lot of people die from air pollution each year. Isn't that right? Yeah. um, It's something of like hundreds of thousands of people globally die from air pollution each year. And right now we're in a situation where the idea of environmental regulations is like totally under attack from Washington, right? So uh, are there any attempts, you know, to roll back any of the provisions that are helping this in any way? Well, yeah, I'm, I, I kind of feel like if it were left up to the Trump administration, the EPA wouldn't exist at all. Um, because they've proposed slashing EPA's agency funding by like yeah. uh, a and like a third or something like that. Yeah, it was by a third, and they've also rolled back the um, the restrictions on polluters. So, so this basically it could and likely will get worse before it gets better. Yeah, it's possible. Okay, Julia Craven, thank you so much for talking to us. Great story. Thanks for having me. Thank you, too, Elise. We'll be right back. (music) 
And we're back. Hi, everyone. I'm Zach Carter, HuffPost Senior Money and Numbers Person. Uh, we're going to talk today about democracy, one of my favorite subjects, how it works, uh, and why sometimes it doesn't. And to do that, I'm joined by HuffPost reporter Sam Levine. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my first time here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, this is a very exciting debut. You've been uh, a pretty important part of the D.C. office, I think, for, what, two or three years? Uh, and you moved up to New York recently. Right. Uh, and have been covering a lot of developments in different parts of the country. Uh, particularly, you've got a story about, uh, about Florida. Tell us what's going on down there. So in Florida yesterday... Uh, important uh, referendum qualified for the ballot in November. And this is a referendum that would amend the state constitution to automatically restore voting rights to former felons who have completely finished their sentences, including probation, including paying off any fines, any fees. And this amendment would make it so that once that happens, they automatically have their voting rights restored. So in Florida, that's a big deal because it's one of four states that permanently disenfranchises people. And right now, the way that you can get the right to vote back is you have to apply to the governor uh, and then you have to wait until you get a hearing before this clemency board, which can take years. There are thousands of people waiting, travel to Tallahassee, appear before this commission and maybe get your rights restored. It's like this Kafka-esque nightmare. I mean, I, I was reading through your story, and, and you just kind of, you almost ask yourself, like, why do they bother with this charade of allowing people to get their, their voting rights restored? I mean, I, I think there's, there's something like, you know, 100 people or so can, can go before this board at a time, and it meets once every few months, but yeah. there are, like, thousands of people waiting for a hearing. Yeah, so it meets once a quarter, so once every three months. And like I said, there are tens of thousands of people who are just waiting. And when Rick Scott became the governor, he changed the rules around how you can apply for clemency. So he made it so there's a minimum amount of time between when you finish your sentence to when you can apply. So you have to wait like five years before you can even start this process. And this is even – even if you're going to go through this process, you have to wait. These are people who – want to have their rights restored, and it's certainly not um, as easy a, a process as possible. Yeah, and and while people are waiting, you know, politics are still happening. You know, it, it's not like they just put elections on hold for a couple of years while somebody who technically meets all the qualifications to have their voting rights restored, you know, waits to, to get the box checked so they can, they can submit a ballot. Uh, this is something about the – about the criminal justice system that has always just kind of driven me nuts and I feel like flies under the radar because it's not uh, it's not like explicitly violent. You know, it's it's crazy that people get shot. It's crazy that people are locked away behind bars for for like nonviolent crimes and have years of their lives taken away. But the idea that someone is banned from participating in a democracy, that's like, you know, it's it's different from the death penalty, but it's kind of a political death sentence, particularly in a state like Florida, where people are just permanently automatically banned from participating in in elections. Uh, in in other states, people have taken a look at this and said that's not a good idea. Uh, in particular, uh, I think I think Virginia in the last few years has taken a few steps. Can you tell us much about what's been going on there? Sure. So the laws around felon reenfranchisement uh, differ around the country, but Virginia is a really, really interesting case. And Virginia, like Florida, is a state that permanently disenfranchises people once you have a felony conviction. 
but it can be your rights can be restored at the discretion of the governor. So a couple years ago, the the governor of Virginia, who's now a former governor, but Terry McAuliffe, who was the governor at the time, said, "I'm going to do a blanket order restoring voting rights to over a hundred thousand former felons who have completely completed their sentences, and I'm going to restore the voting rights." So. He did that, and then Republicans sued him, saying that uh, the governor can do this at his discretion. He can't do it in a blanket order like this. He can't just, you know, sign one document and have mm-hmm. all these rights restored. So the Republicans won. The Supreme Court of Virginia sided with them, and McAuliffe responded, saying, "Fine, if I can't do it through a blanket order, I'm going to sign each one of these rights restorations individually." And he did follow through on that promise. And uh, he left office earlier this month and wound up restoring voting rights to over 168,000 uh, people in Virginia, which is a stunning accomplishment. And, and this becomes, I think, kind of shockingly to people who don't follow politics uh, closely, this becomes a partisan issue because the Republican Party thinks that when more people vote, particularly people from behind bars vote, they end up voting for Democrats. And there, there's sort of a feedback loop there. I mean, if, if your party opposes restoring rights for people, if they get their rights, they're probably not going to vote for you. <laughs> Just the, you're, you're, you're sort of setting you're, – you're making, you're making that hill a tough one to climb. Um, but but the, the, it, it's clearly part of the Republican Party's strategy more broadly. And, and we've seen this in a couple of other areas. Um, not just in in states that have been covered by the Voting Rights Act, like North Carolina. There's also been some some activity in Pennsylvania recently, where there are efforts to restrict the franchise or divert votes into districts where they won't matter. Let's say and the process is called gerrymandering. Uh, can you talk about uh, what's been going on in in Pennsylvania and North Carolina? Yeah, sure. So both both in both those states, there are congressional maps that are extremely gerrymandered. The Brennan Center for Justice has described the congressional maps in both places as some of the worst maps in the country. And a gerrymander, like you said, is when uh, an electoral map is drawn to severely uh, benefit one party. So like in any congressional district, uh, you know, it's supposed to be something like, what, like 500,000 votes per congressman or something or member of Congress? And if you select, you know, some weird neighborhood that looks like, you know, a salamander or some guy named Jerry's face, then you can you can engineer it so that you can you can pretty much predict that the the district will go towards, you know, one party or another. Isn't that basically right? Right. And and this has been something that's been going on for a very long time. It's, you know, historically both parties have done it. Both parties are equal are are guilty of doing it. And. The thing now is that with new technology, there's extremely sophisticated data that political parties have at their disposal where they can very precisely draw these districts to to rig these elections so that the outcomes are essentially predetermined. And what we're seeing now is lawsuits in Pennsylvania and in North Carolina challenging those maps, saying that these maps are a violation of the First Amendment. It's a, it's a retaliation of, of our right to express ourselves. We're being punished for supporting uh, the party that's not in control. And it's a violation of e- the Equal Protection Clause because we're not being treated fairly under the law. 
In Pennsylvania, it's a really interesting case because it's a case under the state constitution. So the Supreme Court has been iffy on this. There isn't a clear standard for when a gerrymander is unconstitutional. So the plaintiffs in this Pennsylvania case challenged the gerrymander under the state constitution. And the Supreme Court earlier this week agreed, and they said this map clearly violates our state constitution. It's unconstitutional, and you have to redraw the maps ahead of the midterms this year. And so that gives them only, what, a few weeks, a few months maybe to to get the maps sorted out? That's right. They want the new maps in place by the end of February when when the election process will kick off. So I have kind of a philosophical question, and that is we can see when a district looks obviously ridiculous. You know, I I think – the district that I used to vote in in Charlottesville, Virginia, Charlottesville is like in the middle of Virginia, and then it was shaped like a T. It just went down straight south along some highway and then mm-hmm. spread out in this fan along the state border. And I was like, what? this just does not seem natural in some way. Uh, but but how do you figure out – like are there standards that people look at to, to, to decide when something – is acceptable or good? I mean, is there an ideal kind of district shape that people people work with when they study this? Well, that's a great question. And that's exactly the issue that the courts are struggling with right now. They're saying that we know this doesn't look right. We know that it's not good when, when Republicans are getting 50 percent of the vote and winning 75 percent of the congressional seats. But at the same time, The legislature draws these districts. The legislature is a political body. So it makes sense that they would take politics into account when they're drawing these districts. But how much politics is too much politics? How far can they go? And where does that line exist? So there's some new tests that are being advanced through the courts with the idea that that a gerrymander to be unconstitutional has to be durable. So there has to be some lasting effect. You have to show over a period of time that Republicans or Democrats have consistently won a greater share of seats than they should have. You have to show that it was drawn with an intent to discriminate. And in a lot of these cases, there's quite striking evidence of lawmakers going on the record saying that the sole purpose here was only to advantage our party. So that you have seems to show crazy that... to me. That seems crazy because in most sort of you know criminal standards or regulatory standards, proving intent is incredibly difficult. You know, someone could say, "Look, I'm not, I'm not racist. It just so happens that I, I found every single one of these white applicants to be more qualified than the black applicants." So you, I, I, I didn't intend to be. You know, things things like that become very difficult to to prove. But people are actually going on the record on, on this. Well, that was what was particularly striking in the North Carolina case is you had a Republican who was overseeing the redistricting process, and he was asked, "Why are we drawing a map that gives?" an advantage to 10 Republicans and three Democrats, which is going to be the breakdown of the mm-hmm. congressional delegation. And he said in a, in a meeting of state lawmakers, well, it's because I don't think it's possible to draw a map that gives Republicans an 11-2 advantage. <laughs> so the, the clear intent, it's just clear, brazen, partisan intent. And what the plaintiffs are saying to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is where the North Carolina case is now, is this is a clear, unquestionable, brazen example of partisan, intentional gerrymandering. And if this isn't unconstitutional, if this doesn't violate those protections on freedom of expression, on equal protection, what else does? 
And in the Pennsylvania case, uh, at oral argument last week, the lawyers for the Republican lawmakers didn't even try and defend intentionally drawing the maps to advantage Republicans. What they said is the legislature is a political body. It makes sense that it can take politics to an, into account. And so it did. It didn't say there's a legitimate justification for these maps. It didn't say, they didn't say we can, we, there's a substantive policy interest that we're advancing. They just said we can draw this to advantage Republicans. It makes sense that we did. And so we did it. And that's it. Yeah, I, I don't want to make this too much about um, horse races and who's up and who's down and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, what matters here is that people are allowed to participate in a democracy. And there, there are some like pretty core democratic principles at, at stake with this. But it is a partisan fight. It is a partisan dispute. If these maps are redrawn, if, if they actually are redrawn before the elections this, this year, does that have a potential to impact who is in, in control of the, the House of Representatives in, in the November elections? Yeah. So I think in, in, in both North Carolina and Pennsylvania, depending on how you look at the numbers, uh, people think that Democrats could pick up um, to anywhere from two to four seats in each state, which would be a big Democratic pickup. I think they need 20-something seats to flip the House. Mm-hmm. So this would this would definitely, you know, put a dent in that. But like you said, I think it's it's the important thing when you're talking about gerrymandering is this is something that Democrats do just to do this is something that Democrats and Republicans both do. So to frame it through the lens of kind of well, Democrats just want to do this to pick up more seats or Republicans are doing this to pick up more seats, uh, I think is is sidestepping the larger issue here, which is why are we creating political systems that that are uncompetitive and make it, you know, not are designing a system so it's not the best candidate who always wins. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about both of these two types of stories, I mean, with, with the felon rights case, you're talking about whether or not people can participate in a democracy. And then right. with gerrymandering, you're, you're talking about you know, what it means to be able to participate and whether it matters when you get to, when you get to go through that box. Is it, are, are you just waiting in line for Rick Scott to check your box in Pennsylvania right. because your district is so weird? Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that in, in looking at the felon disenfranchisement in Florida that's particularly interesting is that this is a law and a policy that is a direct outgrowth of Jim Crow. The Florida Florida lawmakers after the Civil War had to rewrite their state constitution in order to come back into the union. The union said, if you want to be a part of the union, you have to guarantee universal suffrage to all men. And they said, fine, we'll write that into our constitution. But they put these felony – they put these disenfranchised provisions for certain crimes that were targeted towards black people as a way of getting around that kind of requirement and making it more difficult to vote. And that is what this is the outgrowth of. This is a direct legacy of Jim Crow that is brazenly very much in, the, in Florida law right now. And policies which, I mean, frankly, Democrats, particularly in the 1990s, uh, had been pretty enthusiastic about. I mean, a lot of the, uh, not not specifically the, the voting rights provisions in Florida, but criminalizing things that black people do so they end up in jail has pretty serious effects other than just putting them in jail as, as these policies have demonstrated. Well, uh, Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Zach. And I, we'll definitely have you back soon. Uh, and we'll be right back. 
So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Elise Foley, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Arthur Delaney, Julia Craven, Zach Carter, and Sam Levine, as well as Michael Steele, Managing Director at Hamilton Place Strategies. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and get on the phone and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. And thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.